All right, thank you guys. Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of James, chapter 3. We continue this verse-by-verse exposition through what has been a very challenging book, I think, for, for all of what, us and has uh, awakened us to a great many things that we need to consider uh, in our walk with the Lord if we are going to make manifest the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in our lives as we are called to do. It's uh, kind of funny standing up here and looking at the different kinds of crowds that you get like on a Father's Day or a Mother's Day. Mother's Mother's Day crowd looks vastly different from this one. The pews are a little more full because you figure out early on that uh, when uh, the the children ask the mothers what they want for church, you know, if you like, if you have adult children, you know, that your mothers will say, oh, we, I just want the family to be in church with me on Sunday. And that, that's usually reflected in the crowd on Mother's Day. You ask a dad, dad, what do you want for Father's Day? I'll take a brisket and a cake. And that's it. You know, so... Uh, always through the belly. Uh, But I'm glad that you're here this morning. As we look to James chapter 3, if you're a guest with us today, we're so glad that you're here. But the problem with these kind of uh, series, whenever you're going through a a book in the Bible, if you're here every week, you you appreciate, you learn to appreciate uh, the context of what is being said. You, You pick up on the flow of the text the rhetorical flow of a text of what uh, foundation the author is laying and how it prepares for what comes next and then sets the stage for the premise of what he will say next. And uh, you really don't get that when you just kind of show up. This can seem like a, a sermon that, that is out of place. But what we notice in James especially, and all the writers do this, the biblical writers do this, in their epistles. They, there is a flow, and uh, James is sometimes accused of writing like the writer of Proverbs, that he's just picking out random su- subjects and just sticking them in there. Now, I really don't see that. I, I think James does a pretty good job of, of the rhetorical flow of his letter moving from one subject to the next, how one the preceding subject lays the foundation for what uh, follows. And so in chapter 1, we see uh, different circumstances that are presented, adversities that that messianic community is dealing with and facing. And and the admonition of James is that you need to pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray to God for wisdom of how you you respond uh, appropriately, how you as the community of faith uh, ought to respond in a way that is appropriate to your faith, that reflects the faith that that you profess. And so uh, that is kind of foundational to to chapter 1, that we are to be a unique and distinctive people in how we respond to the oppression of the world. And James' audience very was an oppressed community, much more so than our, our Christian community today. But when you come to chapter 2, everything that he has said really prepares you for what he said in those first 13 verses of, of chapter 2, where he is really astonished at the sin of partiality that has manifested itself uh, there in that church. You are an oppressed people, so why are you showing partiality to the rich at the expense of the poor? that are in your midst. You are substantially uh, represented by poverty and oppression within your, within your ranks as a messianic community. And so why is it that when the rich enter in, you show them, them partiality, you show them favorable treatment? And he's really conflicted by this. And one of the things that you will notice over and over, I've highlighted this, I think, in most of the messages, is that when James is addressing these topics, he says brothers and sisters. He's concerned about the community response. 
Certainly he's respond about, he's concerned about our individual responses and he's trying to head off this kind of behavior and attitudes that would show partiality to the rich in our individual attitudes. But also he would say that brothers and sisters, you as a community of faith, you're responsible to call into account, to hold responsible those individuals who would try to afford the wealthy, the rich, some kind of partiality and special treatment. So there is an individual responsibility, but also you as the community. You're very responsible. You, you have an obligation to make sure that this is not being practiced and is being held forth as something that is, that is acceptable in your midst. And so as he moves from chapter Two in verses 1 through 13 as he has dealt with and criticized any kind of attitude that would give partiality to the rich, that sets the stage for how your faith should be made manifest as we come to, to verse 14 through verse 26. The necessity of making our works obvious that yes, we are saved by faith, but that kind of faith that saves, a saving faith as James describes it in the text. A saving faith is something that manifests itself. It is something that, that bears fruit. It is evident in the life of the, the individual. Confessional faith is something anyone can do. So a saving faith and a confessional faith are two different things because a saving faith from Scripture, and this isn't just James, this was true in the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, the teachings of the prophets, that a saving kind of faith will, will reveal itself. It will work itself out. It will manifest itself in the life of the individual. And so all of that has set the stage for what James moves into here in chapter three in verses one through 14. He's dealing specifically with teachers, but he's really concerning himself with patterns of speech. In other words, your words are a work. He's concerned about patterns of speech within the body of Christ, especially those that are in position of being teachers, that we as a people of God, a unique and distinctive people, we have to be concerned with the wellness and the witness of the words that we speak. And so we're not surprised then as we come to chapter three, that beginning in verses one and two, he gives us a warning. He says, do not become teachers in large numbers. Do not become teachers in large numbers numbers, my brothers, since you know that we who are teachers will incur a greater judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now that word teleos, it doesn't mean without flaw. When James or Paul would use that word teleos, it is translated as, as, uh, in the Greek text, in the English text as as perfect, it, it, it's, it's a word that means that it has reached maturity, that, that has reached its desired end. And so if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man. That, that is someone that, that, has, that has accomplished and arrived to a place where God would desire him to be able to rein in the whole body as well. Now, the things that James is saying and is going to say really that apply all the way through chapter four. If you've been in this series week to week, you will recognize immediately that, that the words that he has just written in, in verses one and two, that, that these are words that link back to chapter one 
in verse 19, chapter 1 and verse 26, and also in chapter 2 and verse 12. All of these have to do with the tongue, the words that we say, that these are things of powerful influence, that words have power, that words have influence. And so in the light of that, James says, do not become teachers in large numbers. James is concerned about that messianic community, that there are too many people talking, and there are too many people talking irresponsibly. And James is concerned about this because he understands the impact of words. He understands the influence and the impact that a teacher has. I recognize the impact of a teacher. Do you know that to stand here and speak to hundreds, and no telling how many others online, that is one thing, but to sit in a classroom, in a small group, that is a whole nother thing. And the reality is that a Sunday school teacher, a small group Bible study teacher can wield more influence and more power under your, uh, over your beliefs and your understanding of the biblical text than I can as a pastor preaching from a pulpit. That someone sitting in a small group Bible study can either trump or undo anything that I say as a pastor from the pulpit. Now you have to understand the appreciation of the context in which James is writing. James is writing to a culture where less than 10% of the people read. So the spoken word, the oral tradition has a very formative role in the life of the church. Now ours is just the opposite. We live in a culture where most people can read but only maybe 10% do. So it's a whole different kind of animal. But James understands the power of the teaching office. And he knows that every organization, this is true not just in the church, but it's true in any organization, it's true in any business, it's true of any team. Every organization, every team, every business looks for a vocal leader. If you're a leader of an organization, you have to offer vocal leadership. You say, well, I'm an introvert. I'm just gonna lead by example. It's unacceptable if you're a leader. Because if you're just leading by example, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You're just doing your job. Because every organization looks to someone that is going to be a vocal leader, that is going to establish the culture. And it's, a verbal, it's verbally expressed what we're going to be, what we're going to be. This is what we're aspiring to. This is what we're driving to be. This is what we're seeking to be. This is what we are praying to be. And when there is not vocal articulation of that, then inevitably what happens is that if the organization does not have a leader that is speaking, inevitably, in a church, in a business, on a team, the wrong voice is going to be heard. And when there is a failure to lead vocally, verbally, orally, you get another voice that is cancerous, that is toxic, that is corrosive, that is divisive. James is adamant. Do not become teachers in large numbers. Since you know, and this is the reason, because we who are teachers 
will incur a stricter judgment. That's an office you may not want, being a teacher. You say, I don't know if it's ever dawned upon you, but like someone that is in my position, as an under-shepherd of a congregation, the primary role of a pastor is the teaching and the proclamation of the word, the teaching ministry of this church. The burden of it, what it is going to be, rests upon my, my shoulders. And on the day of judgment, when the day of the Lord comes, I'm going to be judged like you by the life that I lived. What did you do in your life of service? With what you understood about the call of Christ upon your life. What did you do with your opportunities? How did you serve? How did you show the grace that I gave to you? I'm going to be judged on the basis of the life that I lived personally in my personal relationship with Christ. But also as someone who has the burden of teaching and preaching, I'm also going to be judged by the influence I've had on you. What influence I've had on every congregation that I've stood before for the past 35 years. How did I influence? How did I proclaim truth? You say, well, man, Bobby, you sure preach hard. Well, what do you want me to do? I, I realize that in a role of a, of a teacher that I'm going to, to incur a stricter judgment. So you want me to withhold the truth? You want me to tell you a half truth? You want me to soften it up where, where both of us will incur a stricter judgment, where we are both condemned because I withheld the truth from you and then you didn't respond appropriately? We are both served best when the truth and the challenge of the Word of God is held forth with clarity, transparency, understandability. And because I understand the stricter judgment that is going to fall upon me as a minister of the gospel, you know what I've made sure of for your benefit? I've made sure that whenever we call staff, our pastoral staff, that we have a pastoral staff in place that, has, that holds to the same theological beliefs that I do. I'm not gonna call staff here, we're not gonna call staff that has contradicting theological views. You have a pastor, you've called a pastor that is rooted and grounding, grounded in the historical grammatical understanding of the apostles' theology. I've made sure that we are surrounded by staff, that our staff, every staff position of your pastoral staff, that it is individuals who hold to a grammatical, historical understanding of the apostles' theology. See, the most important ministry we have as a church, regardless of whatever you think might, might be most important, according to Scripture, the most important ministry this church has is the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, holding forth biblical truth. And so whenever you are invited, when, when one of our other pastoral staff invites you to be a part of, 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 of the teaching ministry of this church, they are going to seek individuals who are willing to teach that historical grammatical understanding of the apostles' theology. Somebody says, man, I found this crazy book, man, it was nuts. This guy, this guy found some code he brought. There was this, uh, there was this NASA engineer 
Uh, he found this code in the Bible that tells why aliens are here. Man, I sure would like to teach that one once a semester. No, we're not doing that mess. It's detrimental to him because he's going to incur a stricter judgment. It's detrimental for you. Now, we're, we're going to have teaching ministries. Listen, when, when you're asked to teach, we're not asking you to be an independent contractor. You can be sure that when one of our pastoral staff asks you to teach, we're not asking you to be a lone ranger. It's unacceptable. Brothers and sisters, like James says. We're not going to allow someone to be a lone ranger. That's in the congregation. Brothers and sisters should make sure that that doesn't happen. There's going to be a consistency of the historical, historical grammatical understanding of the apostles' theology that is going to be perpetuated here in the life of this church. That's what I inherited from your previous pastors. That's what's going to be perpetuated through me. So we're not asking anyone to ever be an independent contractor where you do your own thing, where you build your own kingdom. But we're going to ask you because I have built a staff around me that I know is in theological alignment with my understanding, the historical grammatical understanding, the apostles' theology, because I know that they understand it. They're going to solicit and find individuals that are willing to be a part of that same tradition, that are willing to be accountable to a congregation responsible to a spiritual leader who will study the materials that we have. And we're going to put the very best materials in front of you. We're going to provide Bible study materials that I trust, written by writers that I know, that I have confidence in, that reflect the historical grammatical understanding of the apostles' theology. And that commitment is unwavering because I know that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. James moves from his warning to the problem at hand. He says in verse 3, Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their whole body as well. Look at the ships too. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are nevertheless directed by a very small rudder where the inclination of the pilot determines. So also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by, by such a fire, small fire. And the tongue is fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body, body's parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell or Gehenna, as it may already be translated in your Bible. So James uses three analogies here, three metaphors, and each one of these, uh, each one of these analogies are used to show the smallness of, of the tongue, of how, of how, the, sm- how the tongue is disproportionate how each of these uh, metaphors that he uses analogies it reflects something that that in size is disproportionate to that which it affects notice again how he begins with the with the bit and the horse you're ever ridden a horse you know you you can put a bit in a horse horse's mouth and and you can give the reins to a child 
Just give the reins to a child and a child can walk around that horse, that 1,500 pound horse, however, however, however large that horse is. That, that child, the smallest child can lean a, lead around a horse on reins because of that bit in the mouth. Think about the rudder, the second analogy. And whether you're talking about a sunfish sailboat or you're talking about an aircraft carrier, the one that controls the direction, the one that controls that, that rudder. And just a small spark, James says. That's all that's necessary to start a great fire. My first pastor, it was in Hemphill, Texas, Sabine National Forest, surrounded by the Sabine National Forest, had several forest rangers that were members of my church. And on those days, whenever they would go out on controlled burns, they knew I liked watching that stuff, so they'd invite me to go out for these controlled burns. And when the, uh, when the winds, when the conditions were just right, humidity levels were just right, you'd go out to these, these areas and they would, just, uh, they would light a fire and that fire would just burn through the woods, that undergrowth, that underbrush, and it would burn all the way to the next road. But a couple of times, conditions flared up that you never expected. And that, that little bitty small creeping fire would all of a sudden start roaring and building up with the wind, and it would come all the way to that road, but then it would just take a spark to jump that road. You'd have another great fire. That's what James is describing here. That's the problem and the power of, of the tongue. That's the kind of effect that it can have. James says in the body of Christ, you've, you've got to be careful that not too many become teachers, that we don't have too many and that are tempted to speak irresponsibly, irresponsibly because when you allow it, no, it's just, it's just a spark that becomes a great fire. You say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me say that. No, he didn't make you. He may have, I, I promise you that's where the thought originated in your mind. I'll give you that. It started in hell. I mean, that's what James says here. That it is set on fire by hell, Gehenna, the gar burning garbage pit outside Jerusalem. But you notice what, what James says, you and I are responsible. We have full control over the very things that, that come out of our mouth, whether they are good or bad, constructive or, or destructive. He said that we direct, verse three, we direct their whole body as well. And the rudder of the ship, the direction. Well, verse four, that's, that's the inclination of the pilot that determines that. We're to be the pilot of this little two-ounce muscular membrane known as a tongue. To have full control over that and the influence that it has in a body. But here's the difficulty. James says, for every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one among humankind can tame the tongue. It is restless. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's toxic, corrosive. And I get what James is saying. You ever visited, uh, you know, an aquarium or a zoo? Yeah, we, we can tame the animals. But not the tongue. And the work of the tongue and the destruction of the tongue... James says it's a, 
It's a poison. See, James is concerned about poisonous speech within that messianic community, the influence that it is allowed to have. Brothers and sisters, you can't let it go on. There has to be an expectation and accountability and a responsibility, especially for those that, that would teach. Can't just let them go, go loose cannon. Has to be an, an accountability because they can spew poison where it's not held in check. Now, James isn't specific, but Scripture in its entirety is. There, there's poisonous speech that, especially the psalmist and the wisdom writer in Proverbs, they speak a great deal about toxic, corrosive, corruptive speech that is not to be found among us as. As a, as a people of God who are seeking to manifest the works of our salvation, the salvation that God is accomplishing, that God is seeking to, to accomplish and to reveal and to make known to the world, that the world might see in us the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. You might just start with gossip. That's certainly mentioned in, in Scripture as toxic speak, uh, toxic speech. You can Google all, you can go, you can go to your concordance and look up references to gossip in Proverbs and Psalms. And gossip begins in, in such a subtle way. If we're not guarded, we can just get caught up because gossip occurs in, in, in ways that, that are subtle, that, that can get by us. Hey, have you, have you heard about so-and-so? Hey, I'm going to tell you because I know I can trust you that it won't go any further. Now, now keep in mind that if people will gossip to you, they will gossip about you. <laughs> that seems to be lost in the equation. But gossip begins in such a subtle way. Have you heard? And, and my favorite one in the, in the church, and, and this, this, is how, this is how Christians gossip. Hey, I, I want you to know about this because I know you'll pray about it. That's the way we pass on information scandalous information. But it happens in, in very subtle ways. Donna Etter is a sociologist for the University of Indiana. She did a three-year study on, on the dynamics of gossip. And her research revealed that, that in the dynamics of gossip, gossip, gossip doesn't really begin with the individual who is communicating the negative comment about someone, the point of gossip actually begins when the person hearing that affirms it or seconds it. And what was revealed in her research, and this is just common sense, that what would become gossip and negative information that is being communicated from the primary source to a second person, that can actually be stopped and it, and it will go no further and it will not become gossip if the person hearing it in turn affirms the person that is being talked about. That when someone gossips to you, hey, have you heard about so-and-so, when you just say something affirming uh, that, is, that is positive, that is complimentary of the one being talked about, stop dead in the water. That's gossip. A second one, and this is akin to, to gossip, it's innuendo. Innuendo seeks to imply something about the other person. And innuendo, 
it always has a little bit of truth in there. It's like the first mate on a ship that entered into the ship's log one day, captain not drunk today. Now, that's innuendo. I mean, he told the truth, the captain wasn't drunk today. But the implication is that he's drunk on other days. That's innuendo. My favorite illustration of innuendo came from my first pastorate in Hemphill, Texas, a small town. And we had this one particular lady in our, in our congregation that was a gossip. I mean, we used to, it was just a given, she was a gossip. Wasn't, that's not big some state secret I'm revealing here. She knew she was a gossip. I mean, we used to joke in our church with the staff, we'd always say we, had, we have three forms of communication at First Baptist, telephone, telegraph, and tell Gertrude. Gertrude even knew she was a gossip. Gertrude said to me one day, she said, no, pastor, I don't repeat gossip, so listen very carefully. <laughs> she informed me one afternoon, called the church to let me know that a gentleman in our church was seen walking in to the liquor store on Highway 87. Highway 87 ran in front of First Baptist Church Hemp Hill, went all the way out in the country, liquor store down there about five miles out of town. Wouldn't know if I'd heard that so-and-so was seen walking into the liquor store. One of our deacons, I thought you'd want to know about that, Pastor. I said, you mean an hour ago? Yeah, it was an hour ago. I said, yeah, I knew he was down there. That's where he went to call me to ask if I could pick him up because his car had broken down about half a mile before the liquor store. Now she told the truth. He was in the liquor store, but it wasn't the whole truth. I love typos in church newsletters and, and sometimes the errors in church newsletters are more profound and more telling than, than the truth. It's all an error on the printout of the hymns that were going to be sung that day. And one of the typo was, oh, for a thousand tongues to sin. <laughs> I think there's more truth in the error. Innuendo. Flattery. That's one that's mentioned often in, in Scripture. The Proverbs, writer of Psalms especially. You know what flattery is? It's the opposite of gossip. Flattery is saying something complimentary to a person's face, something that you would never say about them somewhere else. That's flattery. And the, the problem with flattery is that it always has an agenda. It's trying to get something. The other one is criticism. That's another toxic speech pattern. It's when everything that comes, some people are just wired that way. They're just, they're, there's a critical attitude. They are always looking to the negative. They are always looking for that, which will undermine something that is always, it's an outlook and a perspective on life, uh, on life that is corrosive and to toxic. It's like the person, I always use the analogy, it's like the, it's like the guy who has Limburger cheese on his, his lip. And he thinks the whole world stinks. Not the whole world, just you. But those are corruptive speech patterns, poisonous speech patterns. James says that kind of attitude, when you allow that kind of irresponsible behavior to find itself, to find its way into the teaching, the teaching position, into the life of the church, 
It's counterproductive. And so, here's the challenge. Notice in verses 9 through 12, he says, with it, that is the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. And we've seen this over and over again. This is a concern for James. You and I, as as a messianic community, his messianic community, for us as a community of faith, we're trying to reflect in our witness and our testimony, our representation of the Christian faith, of people who who are made in the image of God. That is what has been corrupted by the fall. All humanity is formed and fashioned in the image of God. And what God is redeeming is the glory of that image. So James says it's inconsistent to come along and bless our Lord and Father and and then to curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, this is communal. This isn't about just you. Yes, it's about me personally, but also we can't allow this to go on in the community. You want those in the church and the teaching positions of the church that understand they're accountable to a community, that they're a part of a greater whole. If they don't wanna be a part of the greater whole, if they're trying to be separate, that's the problem with the wealthy. They didn't wanna be a part of the the greater whole, they wanted to be treated exclusively. We wanna have our own exclusive group, we wanna have our own exclusive material, we wanna do our own exclusive thing. Brother and sisters, no, it's not the way it is. Teacher's going to be accountable, going to be responsible. You know, it's cult leaders who say, well, if I'm not teaching this class, it'll just fall apart. That's a cult. That's cult language. A teacher is going to point how any teacher worth their salt that understands their community role, being a part of a greater whole, They're going to be pointing their disciples to churchmanship, greater churchmanship, greater engagement, greater participation, not withdrawal. James says, with it our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Then he asks questions for which the answers should be obvious. Does a spring send out from the same opening, fresh and bitter water? No. Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, bear olives or a vine bear figs? No. Then neither, neither statement, neither does statement, nor nor can salt water produce fresh. Based upon your affirmation of those two questions where the answer was obvious, then, then neither can salt Salt water produce fresh water. James is looking for consistency for those who would teach in the body of Christ. Instead, what he's seeing, he's seeing tongues that both bless and curse, words that that affirm, words that lift up. That's what blessing does. A blessing is something that, that, that lifts up. A blessing, when you bless someone, you are elevating them, you're lifting them up. You, when you bless them, you are desiring God's best for them. 
But then from that same mouth that would offer blessings, there is cursing, there, there is diminishment, there, there is the wishing of ill will against that one that is created in the image of God. It ought not be that way, he says. Now here's where I want to transition because this is going to be a theme he continues into chapter four, all the way through three into four. We know he is talking specifically about teachers, but here's something that we need to recognize. James' concern is about the influence, the impact of a teacher that has that responsibility. But what we each one need to think about is this. Every one of us as followers of Christ, we are people of influence. You're an influencer. That means you're a teacher. When each one of us live here, leave here into the worlds, into our respective worlds, our respective parts of the community, wherever you and I go, by the way you walk, by the way you talk, by your actions, by your attitudes, you're teaching those around you. You are teaching those with whom you interact. You're teaching them what it means to be a follower of Christ. People who will never read their Bible will read you. They're learning something about what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ, what it is to be an individual that has experienced the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in their life. And so the parting question we all leave with is what are they learning from you? What are they learning from you? Father, I pray that we each one might be able to comprehend the magnitude of our influence. That in our respective worlds, because we are the presence of Christ as your followers, we wield an enormous amount of influence. We leave lasting impressions of what it is to be a follower of Christ. And so, Father, I pray for us as a church family that as we go out into our world, that we would teach well with a sense of responsibility and accountability, of course, to you, our Lord, but also to one another, our church family. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.